Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. June 20th marks World Refugee Day. The U.N. defines refugees as people forced to flee their native countries because of persecution, war, or violence. Well, today we're covering a variety of aspects of the refugee experience in Georgia. So stay with us throughout the hour to meet students far from their birthplaces who found solidarity through music. We'll also hear about what refugees face from locals who'd prefer to roll up the welcome mat than to roll it out. And we'll explore how refugees in Clarkston, Georgia, are proving vital to its economic future. But first, understanding refugee health and well-being. The CDC is funding a prevention research center at GSU. The grant covers several components. One is a new center for community engagement at GSU's Perimeter Perimeter College in Clarkston. Mary Helen O'Connor has been a liaison between the school and community for years, and she's going to be leading an effort to expand upon that work with the new funding. Welcome, Mary Helen. Thank you so much for having me. So let's look at Georgia's history with refugees. A little varied. Jimmy Carter signed the Refugee Act into law as president in 1980. Georgia's welcomed up to 3,000 refugees annually. About a third of Clarkston residents are from outside the U.S., many refugees. But state lawmakers banned sanctuary cities in 2010. President Trump issued the Muslim travel ban in 2017, effectively halting the refugee program. How have these shifting winds changed things for refugees here in Georgia? Well, I I would first say that it hasn't changed the fact that we have a very vibrant, diverse community in Clarkston. We have um, over 60 languages that are spoken. We have uh, students at our campus and community members from all over the world who uh, live together very harmoniously, and we're very proud of that community. What I would tell you is that we don't have... um, new arrivals coming as often with more urgent needs, but that does not mean that the community members there do not have persistent health, education, trauma-related needs that um, that persist. And so we can look at all sorts of community health indicators that can tell us that we have a lot of work to do. And so a lot of the community health indicators around child low birth weight or educational attainment or socioeconomics tell us that we have a lot of work to do in Clarkston. Well, let's look at some of those. You mentioned fewer refugees. The UN says that the world has more refugees than ever, but meanwhile, the U.S. is taking the smallest number of them in decades. So Clarkston's still a place where they've been millions or many, many people welcomed. Can you give us a snapshot of who lives there? I have so many friends, <laughs> neighbors, and, and students. Um, some of the most resilient, hardworking, uh, beautiful people that I know in my life. And so we have groups of uh, Somalis and Ethiopians and Afghans and uh, folks from Nepal. I have uh, friends from all over the world, and they bring with them their stories, their culture, um, all sorts of gifts, special gifts, and their food, which is also another amazing benefit. Um, And, you know, I would say, yes, the rate has slowed, but that does not mean that our community is not growing. So um, the community is there, it's growing, and it's contributing to the vibrancy and the economic growth of our state. And so um, 
it is unfortunate that we are not leading the world in receiving refugees as the global numbers. The UN just released new numbers. Canada this week. led, didn't right? So yes, and so now um, there are more refugees in the world than have ever been since records have been kept. So. Well, let's look at the folks in Clarkston. That's where you're going to be working. Uh, the, the research center that is opening up September 30th, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. So just a couple months studying and addressing refugee health issues. The mission is also half research process and half community engagement. So let's look at that engagement piece, how language and culture affect health income outcomes rather. So how does that inability to speak English affect health outcomes? Well, we're, we're learning quite a lot. Um, there's actually a real dearth of information around refugee populations. Because it's a humanitarian crisis, often what we do is we respond, but we don't take a really critical look at what are the complex issues contributing to education and health and different social determinants of health issues. So we're fortunate that this grant has two components, the community engagement um, component and then a research project. And Georgia State has a very strong program around healthy child development. So the research project is based around a program we have called Safe Care. But what we're going to do is use Safe Care to understand how we can do culturally and linguistically relevant and appropriate healthy parenting among uh, children in the refugee population in Clarkston. So what would be a threat to children in Clarkston in particular? Well, I, we have all sorts of um, different indicators. If you look at the United Way's Child um, Wellbeing Index, which is published on their website, we have all sorts of, of issues around health, um, including just cultural misunderstanding. We had some children who uh, who were hit by cars crossing the street over the years. Because yeah, I understand an abnormal <laughs> amount of children hit by cars. They do not understand sort of how how the, the you know, the rules of the road, so to speak, or our culture work. Um, we have other issues, not just with children, but, you know, around how do you provide a nurturing and safe home for children? Um, how do you improve the safety in their homes. And what we hope to do is to use people from the community to train them to implement these programs within their own community. So we're not intruding into their space. You mentioned trauma. And I read this morning that the Journal of American Medicine, there are a number of reports that trauma, the long-term effects of trauma of somebody who's removed from their home permanently are very little understood. So what are some of the effects of, for example, you know, you're given a green card as a refugee, but it doesn't last forever. So what kind of stressors go on for people who are living with that kind of uncertain status already dealing with trauma? Well, there's that issue. Um, and there's the issue that if you do not learn the language and the culture, you will not become a citizen because you can't, you can't pass your citizenship test. But then there's also the fact that we do have the research to show that if you're a parent who's been exposed to a human rights violation or to trauma, that affects your parenting. Mm -hmm. So there are higher rates of substance abuse, higher rates of, of abuse and violence in the home. And so these are the, the um, very difficult, complex issues that we hope to be um, identifying and learning how to to appropriately address from a culturally and linguistically appropriate approach. How about education outcomes? So what happens if you're a student, say, in Syria? I mean, that the civil war there has been going on for eight and a half years now. How would that affect 
the educational or interrupt the education? So many students um, or many, you know, uh, school age children will have vast interruptions in their schooling or they're in schools that are in refugee camps where the resources are very limited. So big gaps in educational experience. Although I will tell you, there's lots of good news. I don't want to focus on just the bad news. Um, uh, We have a mentor. I have a mentoring program where we mentor refugee students to come to Clarkson. And I just have to tell you that one of my Syrian students who's only been here two years was just appointed to the president's list. She has a perfect 4.0. Wow. Another one, another Kurdish um, Syrian student just was elected as the executive vice president in our SGA. He's only been here for two years. So once they get overcoming great odds. Yes, and once they get the help they need, they thrive. In fact, sometimes we've got we've got examples of them outperforming native students. So um, I think that you know refugees tend to understand that this is an incredible opportunity that they have been given. Less than one percent of the refugees worldwide have the chance to be resettled. So um, the, for the very few that that come to us, they actually take a, a, a amazing advantage of the opportunities we have. Okay, so just half a minute left, unfortunately, but in addition to this community engagement work, it's the grant money for research. How do you plan to collect data and research the things that we've been talking about? Well, we've already started doing that in advance of the, <laughs> in advance of the grant. Um, I I think that the idea here is that we are going to create um, a a real academic interest at Georgia State in this particular global issue. It is a complex issue. We should be we should be taking the lead in identifying and solving these issues. Mary Helen O'Connor, director of the GSU Center for Community Engagement. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. She's a co-investigator on a new CDC grant that expands on her work, funding prevention research at GSU. Mastering a second language is tough. One thing that makes the job easier? Music. The Global Village Project gives middle school, middle school indicator Georgia uses the art form to help Georgia students learn English. Elise Witt leads the school chorus in song. GPB's Grant Blankenship visited them for this audio postcard. So the Global Village Project is um, a special purpose middle school um, for teenage refugee girls with interrupted educations. We have students from Afghanistan, Burma, Congo, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, Syria, Sudan, Central African Republic. I mean, the list goes on. They come to us with, most of them with no English, and so um, we use singing to teach English, and they are going from pre-kindergarten English to eighth grade English in two to three years. The easiest way to learn something is singing it. Those things that we learned as children um, in song, we'll, they'll never leave us. Well, you know, this land is your land is ubiquitous, I think, in schools and around the, uh, around the country. 
But um, there's so many verses, and the most powerful verses don't get sung that often. And I think they're the, the most beautiful ones and the most perfect ones for our students. So, you know, when bright sunny morning in the shadow of the steeple by the relief office, there's, I saw my people. As they stood there hungry, I stood there wondering if this land was made for you and me. And then that followed immediately by nobody living can ever stop me from walking down that freedom highway. You know, our students, they've come through so much. They're coming from refugee camps, from, you know, escaping war and terror. And for them to be here in a safe place and to sing those words, um, I just think it's one of the most powerful things ever. It's powerful for them, but I almost wonder if it's not even more powerful for those people in the audience, just seeing their faces and, and hearing those words. It's an amazing song. That was Elise Witt and the Global Village Project Choir. This was originally a video postcard, so you can watch it for yourself at gpbnews.org. Now stay with us. Learn what Clarkston looked like before it became one of the most diverse places in the Southeast and hear how refugees are helping to shape its economic future. That's coming up in about 20 minutes. But next on the show, a shifting take on refugees that is not always welcoming. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On second thought. Let us know what you think. Maybe you live in Clarkston or thereabouts. What has the refugee community added to your experience of living there? And what would you rather not see? You can go to our Facebook page where our Facebook group is GPB Radio's On Second Thought or tweet us at OST Talk. We will be back. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The world's displaced have almost doubled over the last decade. The United Nations reports nearly 26 million people have been forced to cross international borders to flee their homes due to violence or persecution becoming refugees. For the past 20 years, some of the most oppressed and troubled have sought a new life in Clarkston, Georgia, depending on traffic about 40 minutes outside of Atlanta. Padilla Mixon is one of the leading forces behind the resettlement as CEO of New American Pathways. And Padilla joins me in the studio to talk about the challenges and opportunities that refugees offer. Hello. Oh. Well, first, it may be helpful to distinguish between refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants, IDPs. Can you run through that for us quickly? Sure. Well, immigrant is a broad category referring to anybody who has left their country, come to another country with the intention of staying. So that refers to, you know, refugees, asylum seekers, people who have uh, come through any variety of of our immigrant immigration program with the intent on staying. Um, a refugee 
the U.S. definition of a refugee, to have refugee status in the United States, refers to a person who has gone through interview and screening process overseas. Um, They have fled their country based on a well-founded fear of persecution on the basis of race, ethnicity, political opinion, membership in a particular group. And they are, um, they are, they can't return to their country. They have gone through the process of interview to come into the United States overseas, and um, they are approved prior to coming. So somebody arrives in the United States with refugee status, and that gives them um, the right to work. Uh, that puts them on the path to obtain a green card and become a citizen within five years. And um, how rigorous is that process, that screening? It's it's an extremely rigorous process. Um, you know, we used to refer to it to a, as a 13-step process. I think that there have been some, some additional steps added. But right now, that process can take um, about 24 months. And it um, includes, you know, vigorous background checks. It includes biometric screening. It includes health screenings. So it's it's a really vigorous process before coming to the United States. An asylee is fleeing the same kind of um, the same kind of persecution, but they have instead of being processed overseas, they have presented themselves either at the border, or they've come through another mechanism to the U.S., or they are undocumented in the U.S. and they apply for asylum after arrival or after presenting themselves at the border. So all of that adjudication process happens in-country instead of overseas. Really, they're fleeing the same types of persecution, but they're making that asylum claim here rather than being processed overseas and invited here through the refugee program. And of course, in the Trump administration during his campaign and in his administration, the uh, immigration status, refugee status have both been challenged. And this week, he doubled down on strict immigration policies, tweeting threats of mass deportations, GBB spoke with Georgia U.S. Representative Jody Heiss about the president's message. Here he is. 122 days. That's how long it's been since the president called a national emergency on our southern border. And during that period of time, we've had 325,000 new migrants, illegal migrants apprehended, including 146,000 family units. And, And we are calling on Speaker Pelosi to bring it to the floor for a vote, this is a great step uh, forward, a great initial step to address the immigration infrastructure emergency that we have. So does that call for an emergency that this has to be dealt with now reflect popular opinion about refugees as well as immigrants? Well, I think I think a lot of people are really concerned about people at the border. Um, from my perspective, I'm really concerned that this is a humanitarian crisis. But uh, one of the biggest concerns I have is the policy, the immigration policy environment over the last two years has been a a rapid fire change in every single aspect of immigration policy, impacting every every type of immigration status in the United States, every process. And a lot of these policies are, you know, they don't, necessarily respect the, the dignity of not only the immigrants and refugees who are impacted by the policy, 
but all of the people on the ground who are going to have to implement and deal with the aftermath of this policy. They are often poorly conceived and quickly implemented, and that often results in court challenges. So you have this environment of chaos for those of us who are trying to provide support and services to this community. And so, you know, in that environment, I think it's very important to really look at what the actual policies are before you push forward, you know, some type of, of funding to allow things to go on because we have a situation where we have children dying in immigration custody. We have situations where policies have been put in place that haven't been thought through that had really horrific unintended consequences. Well, a Pew Research poll indicates 43% of Americans don't think the U.S. should welcome refugees. So how does that affect the way that you work and the way that you work within a community? I I really feel like we're very fortunate to work in, um, in Metro Atlanta right now because the communities where refugees are are living are incredibly welcoming. You know, um, the metro Atlanta region is one of the first metropolitan regions to um, to declare itself a welcoming region. We have we have several cities in metro Atlanta who have welcoming policies. We work in close partnership with the city of Atlanta, with the city of Clarkston, with the city of Decatur. Um, we 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 have worked really well with the communities that are welcoming refugees. And what we've seen is just an incredible amount of interest and, and um, compassion in those communities. So at a local level, I, I, really, don't, um, I really don't feel that uh, sense of, of resentment and pushback right now. There, there have been times in the past where we have struggled uh, locally with communities. And I think our approach has changed over the years. We really do look at our welcoming partners as partners who are doing this together. And that's really um, that's really made it better for everyone. What kind of resentment or pushback have you had from communities? Well, I do think that, you know, we have to acknowledge that when you bring a lot of refugees to a community, you really need to... Um, listen to the community. You really need to be supportive. You need to be supportive of the school systems. You need to be supportive with language access issues. You need to help um, both refugees and the community understand cultural backgrounds and build a bridge and really be um, an asset and a tool. And I think, you know, there have been times when we weren't great at that. And there have been times when communities weren't really open to us. And so I think we've made so much progress over the last, I would say, 10 years. That's Paideia Paideia Mixon. She's CEO of New America Pathways. We're talking with her about her organization's efforts to help refugees with their resettlements in Georgia. And I'm wondering about that. What is the role of a resettlement agency as a refugee enters the United States, or the state, rather? So when a refugee is... um, Coming to Georgia, uh, we we get about two weeks' notice that they're about to arrive. We're the organization responsible for securing and furnishing housing, for meeting them in the airport. We're the first, you know, the first face that they see when they um, when they come into our community, and 
The process of resettlement, and that's the official process that's funded by the U.S. State Department, is the process of welcoming somebody, making sure that their basic needs are met, providing cultural orientation, helping them access community resources like registering children in school, making sure everyone goes to the doctor, helping people get their social security card, all those things to ensure a sense of safety and stability in their new community. And that all leads up to a process of helping people achieve financial self-sufficiency. So that's placement in that first job and making sure that they're earning enough to cover their expenses so that they can become financially independent. That's what we refer to as resettlement. Our organization, though, um, we have a lot of programs that go beyond that. So our goal is to walk on a pathway with refugees from arrival through citizenship and beyond. How long does that often take? So a refugee is eligible to apply for citizenship at five years. Um, And so our services are designed to, to kind of follow people and help them meet those key milestones along the pathway. So certainly in that first, you know, six months, those services are very intensive. Then after that, we're really looking at things like helping children succeed in school, um, helping parents access adult education services, helping people move from job to career, helping people apply for their green card and citizenship and family reunification. And then helping people participate in their communities. You know, we do voter registration and civic education. So that when you become a citizen, it's not just a piece of paper. It's a process. You you're really feel involved and like you have a voice in your community. Well, one of the arguments that people make is that refugees are not pr- productive contributors to society or, you know, they're not assimilating. They're not learning language. What is your experience, Ben? My experience is that uh, refugees are, are actually, you know, over time, a real asset to the community. I mean, they start working very quickly at our organization. You know, 91% of people who are resettled are working and paying their own bills within six months of arrival. So they're working, they're paying taxes, you know, they're supporting local businesses from the very start. Um, English language access is, is, is a problem because people are working. You know, they have to have, they have to have, English learning resources that work with their schedule. But you have to learn English in order to become a citizen. So there's there's really a, a, an impetus to do that. And I think most of the clients that we serve, learning English is, you know, a really important. And so the, the thing is, is to make sure that we're providing resources that work for families. Of course, they have to be able to speak English in order to take the test, the citizenship yes, they test. Do. Yeah. How would you describe the economic impact that refugees have had in Clarkston? Well, I think if you go into Clarkston, you'll see that many of the local businesses uh, that are in Clarkston are um, it's former refugees who have opened those businesses, and you know some of longstanding businesses in Clarkston when they started, you know. Um, providing the products that refugees want. People shop there. People spend money. I think refugees contribute to the tax base. They, um, you know, they don't arrive with cars, so they're on foot. So they're really walking and spending money in the community that welcomes them. You know, in, in Clarkston, what I've I've seen, and I know you're going to talk to to Mayor Ted earlier, and I, I, I think he I, I think he would say the same thing is that refugees have really. Um, I've really invested in Clarkston and the organizations that welcome refugees into Clarkston. We are also investing in Clarkston. When, when we 
spend money on behalf of refugees, we try to spend that money locally in the community. Why do you think Clarkston in particular was chosen for resettling refugees? Well, it, it has a lot of the things that, you know, you're really looking for. Uh, lots of access to um, affordable, safe, affordable housing. It's a pretty walkable community. It's MARTA accessible. Um, it's close to resources like the health department. Um, you know, we have uh, we have Georgia Georgia State University has campus there. We have Georgia Piedmont Technical College, so English classes, adult education opportunities. You know, and over time, there are a lot of cultural resources there, like places of worship and stores that sell culturally appropriate food, that really make it an enduring you know, place that refugees really want to be. You talked about offering services for people looking for jobs and education uh, for kids. But what about senior citizens, you know, people who are not of working age? What kind of services do you have or what do they look like for older refugees? So we actually uh, partner with a couple of other organizations to to, um, provide services for senior citizens. I think uh, Jewish Family and Career Services has a refugee uh, program, uh, has a program for elderly refugees um, and uh, CPAC, Center for Pan-Asian Community, also has a program for older refugees. And the main thing uh, here is, you know, for for older refugees, it's about still having a sense of engagement in the community uh, and having opportunities to, um, you know, interact with one another to make sure that people aren't isolated. Another program that we have that works with elderly uh, refugees is our English at Home program. So we train volunteers to provide um, English language training in the home for folks who have trouble getting to English classes. The main thing, it's very important to access, you know, to be able to access good health care services and to be able to avoid that sense of isolation. It's, it's harder for, for older refugees to learn a new language and to adapt to a new place. I've got a tweet here from Mr. Jen. I'm not quite clear on what it means, but it's referring to law-abiding citizens. So one of the the popular um, myths, I would say, the numbers do not bear this out, is that uh, refugees are more likely to commit crimes. Can you tell us some of the myths that you have heard or misconceptions about refugees? I mean, you know, we definitely haven't found that to be true, and I think there's a lot of research that shows that immigrant communities are actually less likely to commit crime than native-born populations. And one of the main reasons is even the smallest infraction can jeopardize your ability to become a citizen. Um, I do also think that people are really looking for a sense of safety and security. So that's not something that we, you know, that 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 we've really seen. But certainly there are a lot of misconceptions out there. I think there are a lot, also a lot of, you know. One of the things that we hear a lot are, are kind of urban myths about things that have happened in the Clarkston community that we really haven't really seen. Stories about, you know, really ways that ref- mistakes that refugees make or cultural uh, issues that um, that we really haven't seen. I don't want to make it sound as if there are no issues or problems, but for the most part, you know, this is a, a law-abiding community that's seeking safety and security in a new place. 
We see another comment from Mitch Leff on Twitter. Clarkson is a great story. I've been working with the Goizeta, Goizueta, I'm sorry, business school at Emory on their Start ME Business Accelerator program, which specifically supports small businesses in Clarkston and East Lake. Well, good news about that and hearing a lot of good news from Paydea Mixon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. She's CEO of New American Pathways. Well, stay with us. We're going to turn to Clarkston Mayor Ted Terry and learn some of his techniques for serving the most ethnically diverse square mile in the country and some programs that are looking forward to new economies, the uh, solar program and coding, training refugees in those those projects, in those skills, so that they can carry forward and carry out Clarkston's plans to become self-sufficient. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Earlier, we referred to record numbers of refugees worldwide. In the past two and a half decades, nearly 40,000 refugees have settled in Georgia. Most of them have come through Clarkston, a city of 13,000 in DeKalb County that has earned the nickname the Ellis Island of the South. By 2050, Clarkston Mayor Ted Terry hopes the city will be known for something else, using 100% renewable energy. But that idea is not without its arguments and critics. Ted Terry joins me now in the studio. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. Lauren Brockett is also with us as Director of 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 Employment Services for the organization Friends of Refugees. She helps prepare resettled refugees for a future that requires skills in coding and solar technology. And Lauren, welcome. Grateful to be here. Well, Ted, uh, starting with you, just over a year ago, Clarkston adopted this resolution that the AJC summarized as DeKalb DeKalb City run by millennials is switching to 100 percent clean energy. What do you think of that characterization? I think that's accurate. Um, Three of our city council members are millennials. Um, I'm 36 years old, so I'm kind of like an elder millennial here in Clarkston. Um, But it's exactly right. We um, uh, joined Atlanta and then most recently Athens as well in being a a Georgia city committing to 100% clean energy. But it's it's, it's not just in words only, it's actually in in action. And so we are actually undertaking a community-wide planning process uh, getting community stakeholders, community input on actually how we will do that transition. And um, so we have just begun that process in Clarkston this year. Well, how are you going to do that transition? That's a, a pretty hardy one. That's right. Well, you know, there's a lot of things that cities can do currently with energy efficiency, with their own uh, physical footprints, um, installing solar, um, supporting um, uh, low or fixed income residents with uh, weatherization energy efficiency improvements that would help lower their utility bills. Um, the best energy, um, say, you know, that, that you can, you know, clean energy you can use is what energy you're not using. Um, and so we know that there's at some point in the future, there will be more onus on the Public Service Commission and Georgia Power to help cities like Atlanta, Clarkston, Athens, Augusta, other cities around Georgia meet that commitment to get to 100%. Um, but there's a lot of things that cities are doing right now to start that transition. Well, New York City just this week announced absolute that, that they're going for zero emissions by, I think, also 2050, but with a lot of restrictions. What kind of things, you know, impact on citizens? What would this mean for them? 
Well, the way we see it is that it will help lower utility bills, create more jobs, and address the climate crisis and reverse global warming, uh, which is a, a real concern to the residents of Clarkston. You know, I hear all the time anecdotal remarks from our new American, you know, refugee residents who have some sort of climate story to, that is part of their larger story. Um, it's not the reason why they are refugees, um, but everyone has that moment where, you know, in their home countries, there were, you know, natural disasters, um, agricultural devastation um, that really wrecked parts of their economy that exacerbated um, some of the current conflicts that caused them to go into refugee status. Well, Lauren, to you, as head of the Refugee Career Hub program, you help refugees with professional development and career placement. So I'd, I'd love to hear about your solar program. But first, a little background on Friends of Refugees in the Career Hub. Absolutely. So Friends of Refugees has a mission to provide opportunities for well-being, education, and employment for refugees that have been resettled. Uh, we work very closely with the other four refugee resettlement agencies in Atlanta um, and have been uh, in that in partnership with, with the VOLAGs, we call them, um, for the last 20, almost 25 years now. Um, our whole vision is long-term engagement with the community. Um, and so we encourage our volunteers, we encourage our staff to really listen to the community and identify what is it that they're asking for um, and, and how can we meet that need. Um, we have three focuses, well-being, education, and employment. So we have an English program. We have a, um, a youth-focused program that offers summer camp and after-school tutoring. Um, and then we have uh, a community garden that is able to support um, the communities that are within that South Jolly Avenue area. Um, and then lastly, we partner with Goizueta Business School, as you mentioned earlier, for the Start Microenterprise program. Um, the program that I'm the director of, the Refugee Career Hub, serves about 2,000 refugees a year. And our whole goal is to get them away from those temporary uh, quick jobs into really f career focused positions. Um, and so part of that is developing new initiatives around what are those future proof careers. Um, and, and part of that is, is solar, another part of it is coding. Yeah, well, let's talk more about that. But first, how many people have you helped actually find jobs in these long-term careers that you're, you're talking about? Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've worked in Clarkson for six years, and I've probably placed over 4,000 refugees in jobs. What and kind of jobs are they doing? Yeah, it's, uh, it's our, we have a portfolio of about 200 corporate partners, all, uh, I would say, mostly within manufacturing. Um, we work with the major hotels in Atlanta, um, as well as some of those uh, warehouses that focus on food preparation. So, yeah. So a lot of different things. And Absolutely. So, Ted, for you, many people do oppose refugee resettlement, and they say, you know, it's a drain on resources, on local municipalities, on the national budget. Lauren and others train refugees to contribute to local and national economies. So is it working? Well, our experience in Clarkston has been, I think, a very positive one. And if you look at the last, you know, 35 plus years of refugees coming to Clarkston, um, you know, indeed aspects of our you know, infrastructure and the businesses are different than a, a typical small American town. Um, but um, you know, there the the patriotism, the the nationalism that comes from our new Americans is as, as strong as you could think from any other, you know, you know, patriot, you know, freedom loving person that you might encounter who might say they oppose refugees. Um, you know, we call 
call them new Americans because they are adding, you know, their, you know, their chapter to this amazing story um, um, in America's history. Um, and, you know, I always encourage people if they, you know, see something on television, hear it on the radio, um, d don't just believe everything you hear or see, you know, come to Clarkston, come to a place like Clarkston and meet a refugee, meet an immigrant, um, you know, go up to what your, maybe your comfort level it is and just take one step forward. Um, and you might find that you'll learn a lot more than you realized. Yeah. And the numbers don't lie. Um, we did a, a, a poll with all of the other uh, refugee agencies and found that there were over 600 corporate businesses in the metro Atlanta area that hired refugees. And there are also 60,000 new American business owners that contributed, guess how much? Uh, I can't 2. even begin. 2.8 billion in revenue in, so our, the, in our the state. Real numbers. Absolutely. Well, walk us through the Refugee Solar Program, which you which we talked about earlier, an eight-week accelerated program that provides training in photovoltaic installations. So first of all, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, I'll, I'll talk about some real stats. So within the first three months of 2019, um, the U.S. installed 2.7 gigawatts of solar photovoltaic. Um, and so we're seeing that our society is really thinking through renewable energies. And this is a prime time for us to really be able to tap into that um, because we want to be able to fill that skills gap. Uh, and so we have a partnership with Georgia Tech um, and uh, we have a gentleman named Sol Haroon, who is... His name is Sol. Sol. His <laughs> name, isn't that ironic? I know. Um, he chose the right profession. <laughs> and, uh, and he is um, certified through NABCEP, which is the, the National uh, Association... Um, I'm sorry, the, um, the North American Board of Certified um, Energy Practitioners. And that designation allows him to be able to, in a sense, create... PV design, um, work with engineering and, and solar companies all over the world um, to really help um, them build out these plans mm -hmm. long term. And so um, we talked about the possibility of filling that skills gap that some of the solar companies have in reference to finding installers that are trained. Because and we're talking about huge arrays of f uh, solar panels in, in many places across the country and here in Georgia. Mm -hmm. So what's involved in this eight-week accelerated program? Yeah, so we, we teach the fundamentals of electricity. Um, we talk about PV design. Um, uh, we also give them something that can be transferable to many different different sectors, and that's OSHA. Um, and and lastly, we actually provide them not only with the academic classroom setting, but also practical work experience. So we've partnered with a few companies that have actually donated some of the technical pieces of the of the solar installation. We actually uh, installed solar panels on our uh, our Jolly Avenue Garden Center. So why did Friends of Refugees decide on this particular training? Yeah. So again, we we thought about future-proof careers. Um, yes, we are connected to businesses in Atlanta that want to hire refugees immediately, and we have seen that they have proven to be reliable and resilient, and they do amazing things for, when you talk about HR, I'm certified in, um, as an SBHR, and one of the biggest questions I always get is, you know, tell me about some of the 
turnover rates, the attrition rates, and we're seeing that they're completely flipped. We've got companies saying, you know what, we we actually went from 90% turnover to now 10% after hiring refugees. And so we know that they've proven to be great workers, but we want to move them out of that minimum wage. We want to move them out of that that ten to to twelve dollars an hour, and really get them on on a path to be able to get out of that poverty cycle. You did talk about some of the partners in this, but who's hiring now uh, in the photo in the solar sphere? That's still emerging. We um, we've had a great partnership with um, Alternative Energy Source. Um, the the irony in that is the founder of the Refugee Career Hub, Adam Hoyt, now works for AES. And so he was able to garnish that relationship, and and they've hired several refugees. Lauren Brockett, she is heads up the Refugee Career Hub in Clarkston. We're learning a little bit about the training programs in photovoltaic installation in particular. Also with me, Ted Terry, mayor of Clarkston. Mayor Ted, he's some. it is sometimes called the Ellis Island of the South for its generous welcome of refugees. Now, Ted, because Clarkston hasn't always had such a strong infrastructure support for refugees, you said before that, that political leaders in particular weren't always welcoming, right? Could you talk a little bit about some of the rough patches? Well, the year I ran for mayor in 2013, there was a year-long moratorium in place um, at the request of the, the then mayor and then Governor Nathan Deal at the time to ask that no refugees were resettled in the city limits of Clarkston. And so part of the campaign that year um, involved, you know, are we going to continue to have that moratorium or are we going to take a more open, welcoming, compassionate approach? So you both make the case that refugees who come through Clarkson have had great success integrating into business, acclimating to the United States. What makes Clarkson in particular this model of resettlement? Well, we I like to consider that Clarkston is sort of like a starter city. Uh, you know, if you are, uh, you know, coming from another country and you are picked up at Hartsville Jackson Airport at midnight, um, which is my experience two years ago when I sponsored a Syrian refugee family, take them back to Clarkston. You've worked with a New American Pathways to set up their apartment somewhere in Clarkston, fully stock their fridge, clothes, furniture, and begin their journey, you know, into a new life. Um, if you literally can walk everywhere in Clarkston, go to the grocery store, the post office, the mosque, the Buddhist temple, the church, Georgia State, Georgia Piedmont Technical College, City Hall, um, the restaurants downtown. Um, and so it, it begins to be a very sort of bite-sized approach to, you know, a big country that has a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the reality is that most refugees are looking to sort of spread their wings and some stay in Clarkston, but, you know, most are moving on to maybe find a home in the, the, the surrounding sort of residential areas um, or even move into other states where there's, you know, family or other job opportunities. Well, we've heard today about some of the tensions from those outside of the Clarkston area, but how about within Clarkston. I mean, you're talking about uh, sometimes ethnic populations that were, you know, in opposition to each other in other countries. What does that feel? What ha- how does the meld work in Clarkston in particular? Well, we haven't had any issues like that recently. Um, I think you have to go back to the the breakup of, the, of Yugoslavia and yeah, the refugees that, that happened from that, that crisis. Um, but, um, you know, it is interesting. You'd think that if you had, um, you know, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, all sort of living in proximity to each other, you know, you know, going to the same schools, you know, walking the same streets, that why aren't isn't there, you know, religious strife happening? And, you know, I don't really have the answer of why that is. It just hasn't happened that way. Um, I like to think that there's an element of uh, 
you know, religious freedom, opportunity, um, a, a basic standard of expectation if you are being welcomed into a new country that you have to follow the rules. And if you don't follow them, you, you could be deported. So it's a little bit of, you know, you know, uh, you know, realization that you got really lucky to have this opportunity to be that 1%, you know, to get resettled and start your lives over, you know, don't screw it up. And I think the, the people that you meet in Clarkston are incredibly grateful and incredibly resilient. Um, they're exactly the kind of people I think any mayor would want to have in their city, people who are peaceful, that contribute, um, and who generally are, are happy to be there. Well, we've asked everybody back today uh, uh, as we're talking with about the experience of Clarkston and experience of refugees here. Mary Helen is back with us. Paydea Nixon is back with us. Just to sort of go through some of this kind of you know, we we're talking a lot about and refuge, the, the idea that refugees are this one big immutable lump. Of course, we're talking about a lot of individual human beings and their own experience. Uh, many of them arrive in the U.S. without any skills or education. You know, we've all heard of the cab driver who actually has a master's degree in engineering someplace else, but their qualifications don't always apply here. Can be really frustrating. So I'd just love to hear anybody has thoughts on, you know, how you help people accept or adapt to a different career, a different place. Do you have to teach American culture on some level? Who wants to pick that up? Um, absolutely, you do. One of the first things that we do when refugees arrive is um, we have a 15-topic cultural orientation session which really covers what is resettlement going to be like, but also what are the the really important laws and customs that you need to understand in order to, you know, adjust and get and get by. And we also have a social adjustment program where people can come back for up to five years just to ask us questions and, you know, just to come back and say, I'm running into trouble here. Help me with this. How does this work here? So, Definitely, there there is a process of learning and, um, you know, a, a process of adapting. Uh, every culture has a different concept of time. Uh, every culture has a different um, reliance on paperwork and how official things are. Those are huge adjustments that, that, that people have to make. Um, and then just think <coughs> about, you know, everything you do every single day, having to figure out how to do it in a new place. I, you know, I just want to mail a letter. Um, I want to go buy food. Um, I want to, you know, I want to take the train downtown. I want to, everything that you do, you have to figure out how to do it in a new place. Well, uh, you know, we've seen in our country's history that we cycle through anti-immigration fervor over and over again. And I would say that we're <coughs> definitely in a place where there's a general anti-immigrant feeling. How do you speak with, and I've just got uh, a minute and a half left, how do you address that with people that you meet in Clarkston? You know, how, how do you how does someone how do you talk to somebody about like, well, a lot of people just don't want you here? I, I have to go back to the very beginning. I learned this summer that my family um, were the original Huguenots from France. So, I, I mean, we are all a nation of immigrants unless we were Native American and born here. And so I think it's critical to the identity of our country that we understand and realize we all came from somewhere else. And in most cases, we were fleeing persecution and just looking for a safe place to live. Another thing I want to add is that I teach thousands of students. They leave and go to other places to go to college, but inevitably 99% of them call Clarkson home, even if they're from 
Africa or they're from the Middle East, they come back to Clarkston. I think it is a unique, special place, and it has a lot to do with the people at this table and the work that they've done um, to make people feel welcome in our community. Mary Helen O'Connor there, and I want to thank all the people at this table, Pedea Mixon, also Mayor Ted Terry of Clarkston and Lauren Brockett. Thank you so much for being with us and having this discussion about a, such an important and vital part of our population here in Georgia. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for t for today and big topic to discuss. And thanks so much for to our guests to help us break that down. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought tomorrow. This is Virginia Prescott from GPB. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.